Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller-Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within, and I'd like to start off by welcoming my guest today, Annalisa Kudos-Wolf. Um, and I believe that we're going to have a pretty dynamic conversation. So I want to tell you a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. And then I want to give you a little bit about um, Annalisa's background, which is really quite accomplished. So first of all, we're going to be talking about what resilience and leadership looks like for women of color. Women of color comprise about 18% of the U.S. population, yet only 4% of the C-level positions in 2018. Um, falling far below white men, which is about 68%, and white women, about 19%. We will discuss what women of color face, how to bust through myths, and how to rise so we can get a seat at the table and create a more just world for all of us. And Annalisa, oh my goodness, you're a very seasoned, certified executive coach and CEO of Women of Color Rise. I've actually been on her show, an equity-based coaching firm based on women and people of color. She coaches social entrepreneurs, C-suite leaders, superintendents and CEOs to build their businesses and nonprofits and expand their imp impact in her 20 plus year career. You don't look like you're much past 20 though, Annalisa, my goodness. Annalisa has developed hundreds of executive leaders to move forward with clarity, confidence, and concrete tools for transformational change that centers equity. She also has consulted, and I think this is such an important thing right now in our world, with organizations on diversity, equity, and inclusion projects. She served as the CEO of a, of a New York City charter school network, brand man manager of a Fortune 200 company, and oh my gosh, a captain in the U.S. Air Force. I want to know more about that. She graduated with her BA and BS from Stanford University, MBA from Northwestern University Kellogg School of Management, a Master of Educational Leadership from the Broad Center, now at Yale. She's a Fulbright Scholar, and I'm, hopefully I, I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Pahara Fellow. And Elisa is also an acclaimed author with books including, um, can you say the the name, the, the is that in Tagalog, Palak Bayan? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, thank you. A Filipino homecoming, Native Americans who inspire us, and Asian Americans who inspire us, which was named to the Gold House book list. She leads women's leadership programs and her podcast, as I mentioned already, Women of Color Rise, I was on. And she is working on a leadership book right now for women of color to come out in the next few months. Oh my gosh, Annalisa, welcome. And as we get started today, what's on your mind? Elaine, it's a pleasure to be here. Resiliency is a huge, huge topic for me and my family. Um, and we were just talking about how I took my family to Burning Man and how that actually symbolizes what I, I believe that we can have for ourselves and for our families. Like, what does resiliency mean? And can we do that at Burning Man? Well, could you say a little bit about that? Because we were talking about it before the show started. Now, first of all, you, your kids are not like teen. They're, how old are your kids? So my kids are seven and 11 and all right. kid, yeah, I had decided with um, a college friend that we were going to go back to Burning Man 
this time with our children when we had children. And this was a year that we made that happen. So it was a college promise that we made true. Um, and it, I was blown away by the experience. Well, can you tell us a little bit about, because we know, I mean, many of us know that it turned out to have like an incredible rainstorm, like more rain happened in that short period of time that happened like in months and months in that part of uh, Nevada. And uh, lots of people got stuck there. I mean, we heard about a lot of famous people getting stuck there. Chris Rock, for example, I think had to hitch a ride. So what happened to your family? And tell us about what your, also, I, I loved what your children's perspective was. And I think that really is about well-being in terms of what you're cultivating in them. So please let us know. So big driver for bringing my kids 7 and 11 was about thinking beyond the constructs that we operate in thinking beyond, you know, what is art? Can we create art together? Can we live in a desert and there's nothing there, create a city, and then several weeks later, bring it back to, to a desert area? Um, can we survive the elements? And I'd spent months, Elaine, months, months, months planning for this, of making sure we had everything, the equipment, there was, it was hot, sandstorms, these hard elements were testing us and the mud though, the rain and the mud, I just had not prepared for. And when that happened, we didn't have an RV. We had a tent. Our tents got flooded. There was mud everywhere. We are trying to, there's nothing clean. The porta potties were filling up. They couldn't serve it. We couldn't go in or outside of this, you know, Burning Man city. And we were stuck. And I thought to myself, well, this is, this is it. We're going to really see what this family is made of. And through that all, when I asked my kids what was the hardest thing, my son, who was 11, said, Mama, it's really hard not being able to ride a bike. I really wish that I could ride a bike. <laughs> and Scarlett, my seven-year-old, said, you know, I really wish that we could go out and see more art and jump in the trampoline. Um, like and when I see... <laughs> So the elements, that's like, okay, that was part of it, but obviously you prepared them for that. And yeah. that's what their perspective was. I have to say, Elaine, um, a lot of my, the way that I'm bringing up the kids, and I'm so grateful to my parents and my ancestors for raising the we, the way that I raised, um, that I was raised, I really believe in opening up their mindset to how we can always find a place of peace and happiness and gratitude, even in the hardest of elements. Um, we got stuck once, Elaine, uh, canoeing in Canyonlands with a storm um, in the back country with thunder, lightning, and having to like hope that our boat wouldn't turn over. And those are hard, hard moments. But in that moment, like I still remember my son and I in the same canoe just saying like, we can do this. We can row past this. We can get to shore. We just have to row hard enough and keep going and keep going. And so those moments of bonding and survival I think then equip us later in life, even with me, like the hard stuff, those are the lessons that I take with me, that I can get through the hard things, that I am strong, that we can get through this together. Well, so as you're talking about your children and your parenting of your two, I imagine, you know, if you can maybe say something about, you know, your parenting and your ancestors, how did you come to this kind of amazing, um, I guess, resiliency, stability, um, of saying, come on, kids, we're going to try this. And these are things that you're, you know, showing them also how they can get through what may be difficult physical situations, but how that also helps to build our character. So I don't know if you could, would say a little bit about that. 
So I'm incredibly grateful to my parents, especially my mom, who showed me what resiliency is. And my father was, both of them were poor when they immigrated um, from the Philippines to the U.S. and had really no money. My dad joined the U.S. Navy, so that was his ticket to the United States. My mom was a nurse. That was her ticket to the United States. And they showed me through their own resiliency what it means to not just survive, but thrive. Um, since my dad was in the Navy and out to sea, it was really my mom who, you know, she switched from to the night shift. She brought my brother and me to a, you know, my grandmother's house. We would sleep there so that she could go work the night shift, go to work, and then we could take a bus to get to school. And then she would be home for us to bring us to all our tons and tons of activities, um, sleep in the car. And so when I think about that kind of grittiness and that resiliency that she showed me, that's what I want to show the kids. And luckily we're, we're in a different um, economic standing now and I have more resources, but it's really about exposure. Um, I just still remember when I was young, my mom said, we're going to travel. You know, I want you to be able to see the world. And we went, you know, we didn't know anyone who traveled to Europe, but my mom took us with a literal backpack and like three underwear. And we traveled around Europe for like oh my three goodness. weeks. I mean, can you imagine like a Filipino family never really traveled and this you know, mother who's just like, I'm going to take my kids and we're going to see the world. So that kind of resiliency is something that I try to translate to the kids. How can we put them in safe, usually situations? Yes, well, and, hopefully, yeah, yes. hopefully, hopefully, um, and let them see that we can do it. They can do it. And it's okay. Fear is normal. It's okay. But like, just keep leaning in and we can get through it. So it's, it's something that I'm really proud of. They didn't mention, both kids mentioned nothing about, you know, the weather the or the weather the sand or the mud or the, you know, the porta potties that were filled up to whatever. Uh, but they were just like, no, I really wish that I had seen more friends or, yeah. you know, seen more art. It's so what funny. The, I mean, this is an impression that I have. And please, you know, um, we hadn't planned on this question, but, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the Philippines and I've met so many amazing um uh, Filipinos that have that kind of endurance through really difficult situations. Like before I went to the, the Philippines, I didn't know that they have kind of more typhoons than most places because of where they're situated in. I mean, I think when I was there a number of years ago, they had had like 17. I mean, 17, it's like, and typhoons, by the way, are like hurricanes for people that don't know what a typhoon's like, but also there's a lot of sadness and destruction of property and, and lives. And yet there was this I remember one woman telling me, Elaine, you know that they've done studies and the Filipinos are the happiest people on earth. And I said, well, no, I didn't know that. But And this was in Tokloban, where so many people had lost their lives. And yet there was such a community of, of building um, and supporting the suffering that had happened. And so when you talk about your ancestors and here your parents came to the United States, do you have much knowledge of your ancestors from the Philippines? And did your mom learn that from her mother, for example, like the, the lineage of how that happens? And I know we hadn't planned the question. So anyway. Absolutely. I actually went through a journey of really getting in touch with, and I'm still on the journey of loving, embracing my, my race, my ethnicity, my family, our history. And I spent about six, eight months in the Philippines, living there in my father's home oh. when I was like 30. Um, I did a Fulbright there. And my goal was to really understand as much as I could what my 
family, my father in particular, his life situation so that I could understand why he made the moves that he did. Why did he sacrifice so much and, and bring the rest of his family to the United States? What was it about his experience? And I was shocked to see how, I mean, I heard a little bit of stories, but it's, it is hard um, life there. And my dad often went to bed hungry and uh, they didn't have enough you know, resources. I wasn't really supported with education. And yet, and yet, when yeah. I ask my dad about his childhood, he will immediately go to the love that they shared and how they su- supported each other. And yes, things were hard and made mistakes, but he was stronger for it. I mean, it's just this optimism when I'm like, but you have every right to be mad, dad, about some stuff that happened to you. And he's like, well, what's the point? You know, it's, um, I choose to be happy. Happiness is a choice. And he says these things are so philosophical. And I was like, I should write that down. That is, it's a choice. Happiness yeah. is a choice. Yeah. It's a choice. It's a choice. And this is perspective um, is for me really important because sometimes I find, oh, it's so hard to lean. My life is really challenging. It's so unfair. But the exposure to not just my dad, but Filipinos in the world, you don't need a lot, right? And and there is so much around us. And I know you teach these principles with the community resource model that look around, raise your head. And even with all of the tragedy, we can see beauty and we can see like love and kindness. And who do I choose to be in this moment? Yeah. So, and, I, and I think that when I was in the Philippines, I saw that um, in, in, in such a huge way. Is that kind of what else is true? Yes, there's this, but there's so much more, the love, the friendship, um, the kindness, the, the community of how people help one another. And here, you know, here we are together, you know, my family, as you know, my mom came from El Salvador and I didn't, um, I didn't do as deep a dive. I was younger. I was 11 and 18 when I was there, but I remember thinking, God, that would have been so much. She was just a young woman when she came with her girlfriends, not speaking English and came here with a promise of maybe life being different um, because there was a lot of, as you can imagine, poverty and lack of opportunity that was there, which of course she had a very different experience here in the United States. And this is kind of bringing us here we were raised by these amazing women of color who came to this land of the, the United States of America with maybe a hope, a dream. And here we are, um, their daughters, having hopes and dreams and also working really hard in trying to create wor- worlds that look at equity and inclusion in different ways. So maybe if we can transition a little bit right now and um, you know, how, what, what brought you, for example, to start working in this way? I want to really support women of color and I want to bring out how there is all the potential of leadership, but there is, I think your words, a cement ceiling that we sometimes can encounter. So over to you, you can get started. So you and I both share a love of supporting others, helping others, and helping people be the best they can be. And it's, for me personally, having others see me, teachers, I mean, people I know who are well-intentioned, you know, ask me if I spoke English as a kid, or if I, was I really a leader, or was I really American, or even in the Air Force, was I really an Air Force officer? Um, And as well-intentioned, that's, that's, I can, I smile through it, right? I smiled through that. I still try to smile through it, but those are lots of cuts that over time, 
do impact us. And I didn't realize how much I had internalized this racism, right? I learned about structures of racism and discrimination, and I'd seen some of it play out, but I didn't really realize that there's this beliefs that I had about myself. And so when we talk about, you know, the glass ceiling, right? The ceiling that prevents women from reaching top levels. For women of color, it's a concrete ceiling. It's a cement ceiling. We can't even see past that because there's, you know, there's not a lot of role models for us. There's um, real concrete that prevents us to getting there. We can't even envision it. And so my passion for this stems from young girl myself, but also seeing how others, people of color are treated. I ran schools for, um, for many years and how we, without meaning to, we hold our children back with our expectations. Um, and then as a leader in the seat, uh, realizing how as much as I wanted to help people, it never dawned on me that I too should lead, that I should take the top seat because if I don't see that role model can I be the role model, even though I'm not looking for power? So it was all of this and knowing how lonely it is to be at the top, the support I wish I had, these lessons I wish I learned, people like you whose stories I wish I had known earlier, that drove my mission to start Women of Color Rise, interview fantastic women like you, really get our stories out there that we're not alone and that there's beliefs that maybe don't serve us anymore that we can let go. Well, and I think that belief about, um, and, and, and you uh, mentioned this once to me when I think we were talking about, it's kind of like not being good enough, is that there's there's this, and when you think about people asking you when you're like an officer of the military, the kinds of things that you just shared, is that it, there's this these microaggressions that keep happening that can start etching away at your confidence. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to really what I would say powerful women, and I'm not saying power in a negative way, but empowered women who've shared with me, well, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm a fraud because there's so much um, also doubt and insecurity that I might have. But see, to me, doubt and insecurity is just doubt and insecurity. It's part of being human. And it, it can be something that we can acknowledge and maybe be part of our experience, but that doesn't have to be you know, define us and not propel us to do the things that we believe we need to do. Absolutely. I mean, I want to go double down on that idea of um, there's a difference between doubt and then feeling like deep down, I believe I'm not enough or yes. that I shouldn't be here or that I'll be found out or that something's wrong with me. And I used to think in some ways, maybe that served me, right? Like I have had, because of these pe well-intentioned people hearing this over and over throughout my childhood and even as adult, that I wasn't quite right, um, wasn't enough. Um, that did drive me to work my damnedest trying to prove that wrong and applying for different, you know, no one in my family really had I didn't have pathways to, you know, see people in college or even, you know, I went to Stanford. Like I didn't know anybody who'd gone to these Ivy leagues or gone to grad school or had these like fancy jobs. And it was like, well, I'm going to show them, right. I can do this. Like someone like me who looks like me can do it. And in some ways that helped me because successful, but also in other ways it was unhealthy. Right. And I'd say like, it actually, I could still accomplish knowing that, full well, I'm enough and that I am perfect 
flawed and perfect as I am and that I don't have to prove myself. And that's like a huge message that I want to continue to drum. It's not just for myself, but people I coach, the women that I support, that you're out of the gate already awesome. And can we look at your strengths and your talents and then match them to the environment and the place where you can really shine? That's the fun part, but let's not get caught up or stuck in, Elaine, am I, is something wrong with me, right? And right, right. so bogged down in that and we don't even know what's happening. So, so like if you could, if you did have like a magic wand and you could go back to that young girl that you were, um, what are some additional things that you would want her to know that you know now, but you didn't know then? I would tell her that when you create your life and you will be an amazing leader who has impact just by being, that create a life of rest and whole self-care. Back then, Elaine, even when I was in my career, even until recently, in education and nonprofit, serving kids of color, low-income kids, it's like never enough. You're n- it's not enough. We're not doing enough. We need to work harder. We need to sacrifice more. So you're not enough, right? And that's the message that without intending to, we give our teams, the people who sacrifice a lot, when in actuality, we want our kids to be happy and we want them to be whole people, not just worker bees. Um, human capital is not just for capital to be, you know, taken advantage of. It's meant to live a life of wholeness and beauty and peace. And so I would have told that young girl, you live that, even though maybe your parents didn't model that because they were trying to sacrifice everything for your brother and you, you live a full life of rest and fun and impact all of that together, because that will make you a whole being who's as happy and as, um, and, and strong insides that you can project that outward. So I would have said that, and I would have said mental health, and I would have said, you know, build your community, do not be strong by yourself. Um, Melanie, I got to tell you, as part of my trying to prove that I was strong, I've run a lot of marathons, you know, one, one a year for 13 years. And so a lot of oh marathons, my gosh. And I, 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 this is how, like, I just want to emphasize, emphasize, I was so into trying to prove I was strong that I ran a marathon. I sprained an ankle and I just kept going. I was like, I am not going to let this stop. Yes. How stubborn and how kind of stupid, uh, but I did it. And then I also was like, I want to show that I'm strong as a mother. And so I ran, um, I ran the New York marathon five months pregnant. And so I mean, talk about grit. Like, Bryson's fine was delivered fine, but like, did you really need to do that? (laughs) And so, do you need to do do that any longer? No, I've given up the marathon shoes, um, and we've moved on to fun adventures that I actually want to do versus like I have to show I'm strong. (laughs) Well, and I think that's, and I, I think this is an important point because sometimes we might think that in order to be successful, that we have to have a certain I don't know, a certain uh, showing of what success means. And maybe running the marathon at five months pregnant could be that example of that. But then what's happening underneath? Now, at the end, maybe you felt, oh, goodness, I did this. But did it give the satisfaction that you would have wanted it to give? Like, let's say, would you want your daughter, Scarlett, to have a different experience than yours? You know, that's to circle back to the burning man. It's always like, you know, you're perfect as you are Just do your very best, be kind to others. And when 
you have a decision to make, ask yourself, do you really want to do it? Would this bring you joy? Um, start there and see how you react instead of how others want you to be, including me. Make your own decisions that are drive you from joy. After the marathon, I honestly don't even know what kind of satisfaction. I was, I, I was so unconscious to this internalized trying to prove myself that I was like, okay, done. You know, like, good. You know? Like <laughs> you check thought. it off the list. Yeah, check that off. Let's do it next year. I mean, it was just like, it's so unconscious. And so, there's a lot deep down that I would have, um, everything happens for reasons. So no regrets, but I do wish that I had understood where these beliefs come from that drive actions. So much of it was deep seated, even generational that I'm grateful for, but also that it's time to let go. Well, and I think that that's, you know, about when we talk about women's leadership, because if you look at what you just, the statistics that you shared with me, 68% of white white men are in those leadership positions, um, 16% white women, and the and say the percentage again for women of color, it's so small. 4%. I mean, so 4%. tiny. Yeah. And so I, I want to talk about that because... Um, you and I both, you know, we didn't come out of the gates. We both went to Stanford. Like, I'm going to be a leader, put a CEO title on this one, right? Like, we're not, we were not that. We we're just like, who can I support to be a leader? Uh, and who can I serve, right? What can I do to help? And I actually think that while it makes sense, right? We don't like, it's it's what they call the um, double-edged sword, the double jeopardy. Uh, we want women who serve we like those women, but yet they're not leader material, right? And a, a woman who wants to be a leader is a greedy person who wants power, therefore not a nice person. You can't be both. You can't. Well, and she's not only greedy, but she's bossy. Yeah, she's a bad. She's the bossy, word. and I mean, they don't. We don't use the word assertive. You're bossy, no. bossy and pushy, bossy yes. and pushy. And, and I remember when I was doing my my graduate internship at Stanford, one of the people that I worked with, they said, "Oh, then you know, you're becoming one of the main leaders in this particular area." I go, what? I was really. I mean, I didn't believe her. I didn't believe I could be that person. And so it was. It has come. You know, it's been a long way. That was. You know, almost forty years ago now, but. I mean, wh why does why is that, right? You're you're we're we're kind of laying the foundations of where that comes from. Absolutely. I mean, you, if you try to speak your mind or have an opinion or be on stage as a girl, that's not a good thing. You're a showboat. Like, who do you think you are? You think you're better than other people? Why are you speaking? You you're meant to be looked at as a pretty thing, not something to be talked through, uh, talking. Um, and, but if I was a male saying, Hey, here's what I think I should lead. Um, it's my turn. No one would bat an eye. They'd be like, of course, go ahead. You lead, you look the part. And so it's this, you know, double-edged sword where you well, can't ever win. I'm a bit older than you, but I also remember my mom talking about the etiquette of that. You were supposed to really sit quietly and not speak out. That was never my way. Um, she was a pretty outspoken person herself, but there were certain things that were conveyed to me that saying what I really thought about something wasn't accepted, not only in society, but not in the household either. Absolutely. 
no talking for you. No talking for you. And that's why I think it's so great when you tell me about your daughter and how you're raising her. And I think, you know, my daughter now is, uh, she just turned 40. I can't believe she's that old, but she definitely is an outspoken person. And she's been that way since she was a child, but I really wanted her to be that way. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say the same kinds of things that you're saying to your sweet seven-year-old now, you know, your opinion matters. And yes, you can, well, let's go in and talk to the principal. Do you want me to come with you? Or can you do it by yourself? I can't believe sometimes she would go by herself. And I can't even imagine doing that as a child. I was so painfully shy because I don't think I ha- was given that kind of belief that it was possible for me to do that. Oh my, oh, I, I have to tell you, we're going to be, we're already time for our break, Annalisa. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we have probably got started talking. We're going to be back in just a couple of minutes and we're going to continue this really dynamic conversation with Annalisa Kiros Wolf. And we're going to continue to talk about how we can maybe build some more pillars, right? For women to hold on to and maybe create themselves. Um, in the workplace. So we will be back in just a moment and continue this dynamic conversation. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Annalisa Kiros-Wolf. We are talking about um, leadership and women of color. And we have been having quite a conversation. And I kind of want to segue um, now. I'm hoping to maybe get some more um, 
perspectives from you regarding, you know, what are some of the myths? What are some of the things to break through? You may, we may have women all over the world listening to this going, well, what can I learn from Annalisa that I can take and start applying to my life to reflect upon and maybe be able to embrace all my potential? Elaine, I want to highlight this idea of going it alone versus going with the community. And it's interesting because as a, a woman, especially a woman of color, seeing my mother, who in many ways, I felt like she was by herself, didn't have a lot of role models, people who were, she was trying to, you know, have us go to college. And it was just trying to get any information she could about how to help her kids. I saw her do it by herself and she was strong. I don't know if she ever cried, but like, to me, she was the epitome of strength. And I wanted to be like her, someone who didn't need help, someone who could you know, didn't show that there are cracks. And that, while maybe I did have this facade that I was independent and I didn't need anyone, that held back my career. Because the reality is you're only as strong as your community. You're only as strong as your network. And while my head was down trying to show people I was strong and I could do it by myself, I wasn't taking time to build those relationships that not only could have helped my my job, but also could have helped my career. I think like two thirds of jobs happen through just networks, even more. And when I was transitioning, I just didn't make that time to have those relationships in place so that I could just tap on you and say, hey, Elaine, I'm looking for this kind of role. And knowing us knowing each other, that's like most of the battle, right? To get the recommendation or even have be part of the hiring team. And so my big my big push here is, while the myth may be that you know you need to do this by yourself and and be strong in actuality it's good to be vulnerable and it's good to be authentic and it's good to just say hey i need help and that relationship of actually asking for help builds trust to say i value you elaine i know you're an expert in so many things can i have your help and that builds our relationship for the next time for the next time for the next time and that when that happens or maybe one of us needs an opportunity, we're more likely to tap each other. So that's what I would have told myself as a, as a young one is to really build community and ask for help. I want to just uh, piggyback on what you said. I also think it's that it's also okay to show your vulnerability mm. and that, that you aren't perfect at everything, but even the exposure of doing something that you travel to another country or you meet someone who's from a different background and you have a lively conversation, that that exposure is something that also brings riches to you and a wider perspective of how you can be in the world. So it's not about you having to be the best at something. It's about you just even walking in and trying something new and saying, oh, I really like that, or I'm never gonna do that again, because that's a very, not, I just don't like skiing, for example. I mean, it could be whatever it is, because I think that sometimes, um, especially in the US, um, that there's this strive for you have to be perfect at it. And I think that we, we hold ourselves and others to something that is completely unrealistic. When I was first creating the community resiliency model and I was um, trying to teach people that they could actually teach this to others, it didn't have to come from me. I came up with this idea that was um, the, the good enough teacher. You can be good enough. It doesn't have to be perfection. But I remember I was working with a young man 
who um, had had head injury and he was working with veterans. And he was so amazingly powerful talking to veterans about um, head injuries, but also about how you can build your resiliency. But it wasn't because he was perfect at it. It's because he was vulnerable. And, you know, I think our, the, our, the leaders or the role models for us also come in many different places. Like you're talking about your dad and your mom. And, but I also think I, I, I come from, and I would love to have your perspective about this is there's a matriarchal view when we think about community that's different from being like, oh, I'm going to do it all by myself, you know, pull up my, you know, my, my bootstraps and get through life by myself. Cause I can do it. So I don't know if you could reflect upon that and how does that fit into the, the what you um, guide people um, to when you are coaching them or does it? Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about and build upon your point about matriarchal leadership because often the stereotype of leaders, if I were to say who's a you know, picture a president, picture a CEO, picture you know a leader of a church, right? Um, likely we think male and likely we think white male and these dynamics of actually women, women of color, we bring a lot of value in the intrinsic way we lead. I remember when I was a CEO, I thought to myself, well, shoot, what kind of leader should I change to be? Like, who do they need me to be? And I've become strong in my career at adapting the military. I mean, come on, that was very different. Being in brand management with like very fancy women in high heels, very different. Um, and then being in, in schools. And so, so different environments. I was so used to being a chameleon of like, who, who do I need to be here so I can survive? And what I'm realizing is, and it's a myth, you know, you've got to be a, a male type of, you know, this kind of decisive, you know, strong and charismatic leader. But actually, as women, as matriarchs, we lead in a different way in general. And I don't mean to be so gendered, but like in general, we tend to be more collaborative. It isn't a power play. Elaine, share your gifts. I want to highlight and, and raise you up and share your story because when you share, I benefit. It helps us all. And wouldn't it be great if actually you never, you didn't even need me anymore because I helped to build you up and build your skill and build your network and expose you to things so that you would be okay and do great on your own. And so this, this type of leadership, I think is so beautiful because it is more just and fair and it allows for other people to come behind us that we're not here to have power, take power, and still be in power. We're here to just continue to pass the torch and make it better as we as we go. And so that kind of matriarchal approach is, is, is a beautiful and I think a way that we can be really proud um, as women of color that we, we tend to take. Well, and I was thinking about this in, in terms, there's a, a term in psychology um, that was actually coined by Dr. Shelley Teller called tending and befriending, a survival response. So I, I just loved when I first read that she had brought this into the field, because I think that many people, when they're under a lot of stress, um, certainly many women, they tend and befriend. How mm. can I help? group what does the social group need i mean what do, what do the children need to survive and to think about just historically women were often the ones who were the primary um caretakers of the children and also the community and you know i, I when i as i'm talking about this too and, and i i want to really just um say that i know that there's many people that don't look at themselves in binary ways and i'm not saying this in terms of um, negating their experience, but to say that there's something about this perspective that comes from 
what I'll call matriarchal that can be from any, how, however someone identifies with that is collaborative. And, and that is possible for all of us to be in those spaces of how we create generosity. And, you know, so, so many times it's like, oh, how competitive is that? Let's see the competition between these two people. But if we can say, well, what about the generosity of how we come together with compassion and empathy to support one another? And that person had a hard time in the workplace. And what if we bring them in with compassion and understanding and not um, negativity? Does that make sense what I'm saying? Absolutely. Um, because I think if it's not about me or my power and it's about us collectively, I want you to be as strong as you can because we're stronger together. And that togetherness allows us to be in it together. And it's it's similar to Burning Man. It's similar actually to the military. Like I would never leave you behind. Like you are me. I am you. We're together. And I sound I think that sounds so well, like romantic, but it's it's actually how it's practiced. Um and I, it's hard to, to, to say that. I think sometimes in environments, it feels so competitive, um, but it doesn't have to be that way. We can be in, in community with, with each other in, in love. It, <laughs> it's, it, it, I have to say in Burning Man, it's one of the places in the world, and I think in all my experiences in the world where you can just show up and people will welcome you. Um, and that's really neat. Well, and, and so I guess the other um I have some other questions um, from you, and about, you know, to see what your perspective is. And that is, um, I've got a lot of battle wounds of being in front of groups of people and having an opinion about something. And I have to say that a lot of the times, the um, uh, what's happened to me have has happened um, by men who question my authority, my thoughts, my ability to do whatever that I was doing. So. Um, I continued, even though at times it was not easy, and I had great doubts about myself, but it's it was about, um, and we both have felt mission-driven. I felt, well, what's happening and what I need to do in the world is greater than myself. For whatever reason, I'm supposed to be driving this bus, and I don't care. I got to the point where they can have their opinion, and I can even respect them for an opinion, but not on saying that I can't drive the bus. So your thoughts about that? <laughs> oh, so I have a lot of thoughts about that. Oh, good. Right? Oh, yes, I mean, look, women starting as girls, we're meant to be looked at, seen, but not heard. And dare we try to overstep that boundary? It's hard to see us as nice. And so we turn into that bossy, you know, com you know person who's just trying to take too much power. And it puts us in this tough situation. I love your strategy for how to get over feeling uncomfortable when even women will look at other women will look at us with like, who do you think you are? Right. Who do you think you are that you can come in with such um, as if you know what you're talking about, as if you have experience. And sometimes people don't go beyond to keep, to keep the fight going. I love the strategy you named of, because I deeply believe in what I'm doing and who I'm serving, I will keep going, even though you might think that I am being bitchy or whatever the word is, because I deeply believe it. And even if you're being disrespectful, I will still reiterate, even though you took the, that idea and took credit from, from what I just shared, I'm still going to have conviction. And I want to name that because I wished that I had known this was going to happen to me. 
that I would say something in a meeting. I'm not sure if this has happened to you, Elaine, and no one will respond. But then a few moments later, a man will say that same thing. And all of a sudden they're just like, that's brilliant. I love that idea. Where did you ever come up with it? I'm just like, what, what happened? And I was thinking to myself, well, maybe I'm not articulate. Something's wrong with what I said. And when you see a pattern that this happens to me, to others, like what can we do to interrupt it and to know we're not alone and that we're not crazy. And so how do I like, so we have these strategies, Elaine, to know that as another woman of color in an organization, when you say an idea, I'd like to just capitalize on the idea that Elaine shared or, Hey, John, that's idea. I actually heard that from Elaine earlier. Elaine, can you come back and uh, let's, let's talk more about that. Can you bring that more to light? Um, or even just name it. Hey, I, I just want to make sure that you know that was, um, you know, that idea was from Elaine. Like, how do well, we pull these out? So right. that and, that's, and that can be something that if someone does what happened to you, if there's another person in the room that says that, oh, that's exactly what Annalisa just said. Right. So that's one of the strategies that can be very helpful because as you are bringing up someone else, you bring up yourself. Mm -hmm. Both is happening at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to know that it will likely happen, microaggressions will likely happen. And while that's disappointing, let's be ready. And if we're not ready in the moment, let's come back so that doesn't happen again. And let's build allies in the room so that we can, you're not by our, we're not by ourselves. So we have to talk about these issues. And I honestly don't think it's intentional from our colleagues, but it's just baked into the the blood, the, the air of what we breathe that we need to interrupt it. Well, and I think, I think what you're saying is correct because I think it is just so, it's like a stream, it's like a river. And they're so used to paddling in the river in a certain way that when someone says something, oh, well, look at this paddle or look who's holding that paddle. Oh, well, wait a second. She's not supposed to hold the paddle. I'm the only one that holds the paddle for the river, right? But we're saying, oh, but it doesn't have to be that way. No. And, and that doesn't mean that there's going to be receiving ears. And I guess that's what I, I want to say is what, what is your advice to people saying, well, you know, I'm really trying to do these things, but I just keep getting knocked down. It just seems like all the positions, every time I apply for something, it's, it's not me, the woman of color who's getting the position or the woman who's getting the position. Yeah. So there's two things. One is make sure you've built your network and particularly women of color, we get so many mentors. Oh, I'll be your mentor. Oh, I'll meet with you and give you advice. And that's nice. But what we really need is for you to sponsor us. That means that you're willing to put your fanny on the line to say, you know what? Elaine is amazing. You need to hire her because she's fantastic. I am willing to put my, to put my name on, you know, on this, that whatever it takes, I will sponsor her. That's what we need doors to be open for real positions, opportunities where maybe we don't have yet that experience, but we have that potential, the way in which you would treat a white man, give these types of opportunities. So I would say build your network, particularly sponsors. And the second thing is sometimes it's not the environment for for you to thrive, for us, for, for women of color to thrive, that it's bit saturated with white supremacy culture, that the power, especially on top, is much more ingrained in picking people who look like them, you know, friends, small networks. And it's really hard. I believe in change and I, I have a lot of hope for us, 
the same time, it, it's, it could be very ingrained and that's not the place to thrive. And there are other places where you don't have to be in an uphill battle of trying to have impact when it's not, this is not the place. And there are other places. We spend so much time trying to fight the fight. Let's actually turn that energy toward places where you can actually put that toward the mission instead of just trying to survive in an organization. Well, I guess, you know, one of the things that's coming up for me as you're talking, and I've certainly seen this since I was a young person in the 70s, right, um, coming to age, um, that there has been a pendulum that has swung, and that is in reproductive rights. I'm just putting it out there, because and then I see sometimes the images of the people making the decisions mm -hmm. that are policy decisions about reproductive rights, and the majority are white men. And that is very disconcerting, and that's happening in greater frequency right now. Um, and so what are there some ideas that you have how to counterbalance that in terms of everyone needs to be at the table and certainly women should not be excluded when you're talking about women's reproductive rights yeah i mean we have to name it that the people making the decisions are not actually from the population but i mean honestly elaine that's so true of like nonprofit you have a lot of organizations that are run by people and it's not bad to be of wealth that's that's fine but often of not of the demographic of the community that we serve and i'm not at all bad mouthing these leaders good friends of mine what i'm saying is that's wonderful to start it but can you pass the baton it's about sponsorship it's about releasing power for the next people to come after you, ideally as close to the population that you're trying to serve. So I have so much gratitude to a lot of my sponsors who actually, Elaine, were often white men. Um, and I've had a few women of color who've supported me, but I've had white men who have opened doors for me and they didn't have to do that. They continue to do that. I, that's how I met you. I mean, people who are willing to say, my Rolodex or back in the Rolodex, the LinkedIn, my, my person is your person. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to support you. So I would say one, recognize it. Two is let's open, let's be clear about power and, and release it and allow others to take power. And three, if it's needed, sometimes you need board intervention to say, we, we, did, we need a leadership change here. And it's that seat at the table. That's why as much as you and I don't look for power, we need to take these, these positions because it's actually when you're at the table that you can have the change that we really want to make. So that's why I encourage women of color. You might not want the power, but if you want change, you need to seek this actual power so that we can make that happen for everybody. Well, and that brings me to another, another point that I think is really important. And that means that you can't silo yourself. And if you live in a silo and if you don't reach out like to others who may have different perspectives and be of different ethnic backgrounds, then we're not going to be able to come together to also, I think, make significant permanent change because then there's always going to be the feeling of someone is the othered. But if you, if, I mean, you know, why did those men decide to support you? Why did they decide, you know, what was it about you that they said, oh, but you, we need to have her voice we need to have her perspective in these meetings. So I have to add on to your point that we need to not be siloed. And when we build our support network, it's wonderful to have other women of color, other Filipinas. I mean, I would love that as a, as a support network, but we need to go beyond that, build relationships with males, white males, people, not just laterally, but also people with 
a lot of power so that they can join our family. And those were the reasons I think where I was able to ask for help was one, I think they really wanted to help me as, and saw potential there as people themselves. So I want to make sure I, I call, I give credit there. And, and second, I was willing to say, Hey, this is what I'm dreaming about. This, this is about my, you know, my personal life and what I hope to have an impact on the world. Could you help me? You know, so it takes those both, the people willing to, to share power and then second, me willing, willing, willing to ask for help. Um, and so those two, I think, allowed for a relationship that continues to this day. People I invited to my wedding, you know, people I still talk with. Well, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about there is that um, uh, connection and engagement with others that's been very important for you and for the work that you're doing. And again, I'm going to emphasize and underscore and to create a broad community made up of, of all people. And to, yes, to have your places where you can stop in and be silo, but that there's also uh, creating that broad, broad community. So we only have a couple minutes left. We've gone, it's, this has gone by so quickly. Are there any, you know, you know um, closing words that you want to leave our audience, Annalisa? So I'd say two words or shares. The first is to know that we're enough and that we're perfect as we are and that all we need to do is show up. Show up with our strengths, our, also our vulnerabilities, our authenticity, and trust that if this is the work and the place that we need to be, it will align. And so that's the first is to really show up. And that's beautiful and not just enough, but amazing. And the second thing I would say is there's this myth that you can't have your all, but I do believe you can if you get clear on what it is that you want and you go out into the world with your whole life, not just the work, but also all the other fullness, your community, your self-care, it is possible. So those two I would leave you with. And if people would like to get a hold of you, what is the best way to reach you? You can go to my website, AnnaliseWolf.com, or you can email me at Annalisa at AnnaliseWolf.com. All right. Annalisa, thank you so much for your wisdom. I really want to invite you to come back at another time and we can continue this conversation. I feel like we've just kind of gotten our feet wet <laughs> and there's a lot more to talk about. So thank you so much. And I think um, Annalisa has really given us a perspective of to embrace our vulnerabilities, to know that, that we are enough, and also to remember what else is true about the people that are in our communities that we love, that we cherish, that we can, we can learn from. So this is Elaine Miller-Karras signing out for Resiliency Within, and again, with a deep bow and gratitude to Annalisa Kiros-Wolf for her wisdom and for coming today to share that with us. Thanks so much, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.
Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.